Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups and From John to Justin, available on all podcast platforms. Today I'm talking with Stephen Brown. He wrote the excellent book, The Company, The Rise and Fall of the Hudson's Bay Empire. It chronicles 200 years of the company's history from its founding to the mid-19th century. So let's get right to the interview. Oh, uh, so usual question to start these things off. Why did you decide to write the book? It's an idea I've been thinking about for many, many years. Um, yeah, when I just went back and read all the old histories, I realized that whole big chunk of the story was definition of what constituted the company's employees or the company's people. Um, they were looking at people who signed employment contracts in London and who were sent over, you know, the, the you know, which, which actually only focuses on a very a, a narrow subset of who was actually employed by the company because way back in that era, I mean, the late 17th century, I mean, there wasn't even accurate maps of anything in order to get across the ocean you loaded onto a creaky old wooden sailing ship with tattered sails and spent months at sea with everyone dying of diseases and scurvy and malnutrition. And finally they lurched their way into this ice infested Hudson's Bay and weave their way between the bergs and they pull up on this stony shore in the middle of nowhere and the Arctic wind is lashing at them. I mean, there's no way that these people had any inroad into that land at all, other than the road that came through cultural um, adoption of survival techniques from local peoples who use that coastline, you know, Western mm-hmm. coastline of Hudson's Bay, uh, you know, seasonally. And so the first thing they had to do was learn the customs, learn the language of the people. And of course, you know, owing to the amount of time and the difficulty and the danger associated with getting there in the first place, these employees didn't just re- return home. They signed employment contracts up to seven years at a time. Many of them spent their entire lives there and retired there, there on the Bay. And so they actually had, um, the first thing they had to do was many of them had indigenous wives and children raised on the base. So right from the very beginning, there was already a, a mixed culture, mixed society developing in the, these, these outposts along Hudson's Bay where they almost became like little, little outposts of a mixed culture that was somewhat unique to itself. And they didn't venture very far inland, but um, 
I think that aspect of the story has not been fully understood and appreciated the extent that if you include women especially and then when all these children grew up they also worked for the company too people of mixed mixed heritage i mean uh, you can't dismiss them as if they're not a company employees it would be like saying a royal lepage real estate agent uh doesn't work for royal lepage because they're on contract or or commission or something right i mean and the, mm-hmm. the whole in the whole inland aspect of the trade was also managed by um rather large, sophisticated, well-developed indigenous business enterprises that were run primarily by, uh, you know, the Cree were really involved in that. The, they were the people most associated with the company and they some expanded with the company as it went across the continent all the way to the Pacific Ocean. But um, just there's so many aspects of the story have never been fully mm-hmm. appreciated in the popular telling. There's a lot, I mean, academics study this this these aspects of of the culture but i mean those aren't very accessible it's not very accessible information to people so um, i i really wanted to make sure that everyone had a full sense of what the land was how the different land different cultures different economic systems and politics and religions and and you know the company changed over time too so there's that whole aspect of the company is that when we're dealing with a 200 year history there's no one way to sum it up because it, it changes over time Absolutely. Uh, when we do look at the history of the Hudson Bay Co- Hudson's Bay Company, do you feel like we focused um, too much maybe on on the chief factors, on the most notable explorers like David Thompson, and not so much on those regular people, the and especially the indigenous who had such a massive impact on the survival of that company in its early days? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that's been part of. I won't say that it's the problem. It's it's that. Uh, it's part of the reason why we don't have as full an appreciation for what was going on, the, di- the dynamic aspect of, of the land and its cultures and its, its peoples and how the company interacted with them over time. Um, y- you know, you do have to focus on some of those key people because they are the key, they are key people. But on the other hand, there are multiple ways of, of uh, interpreting their role within the company and the role well, the role of their spouses and their children that eventually came from these unions and just the the extent to which the company was fully and completely integrated into multiple indigenous societies across the continent has expanded. I mean, that was the only way they were going to be in business. You're not going to, you're not going to be in, in, in business with people without forming some kind of cultural diplomacy with them. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I mean, that, that whole aspect of it is, has been missed. And we often treat it as like, oh, this this grand hero explorer went here and this grand explorer went there and they did this. And and um, I think part of the problem is that we mistake. It's easy to, to, to get this narrow, very narrow definition of who the important people were by mistaking the source for the story. Because a lot of the indigenous societies were were not literate societies; they were oral societies. And so, when historians go looking for documents, they find the stuff that's been written down. And if you treat that as if that's the story rather than the source, then then everything's going to be told from the point of view of the people writing the journal. Um, but there is there is one classic example that um, well, actually, there's multiple examples. But one of the classic examples is. Um, uh, Anthony Hende and uh, a fellow named Tikashish. Um, Anthony Hende is well known. There's roads named after him. There's giant, you know, uh, overpasses in Edmonton named. I think one of the, un- the university buildings at the University of, of Alberta 
is named after him. He's quite a well-known fellow across the Canadian prairies. Um, but who was Anthony Henday? He's treated as if he's a grand explorer. You can go on Wikipedia and it'll show you a map of where he went on this big loop. And um, But if if you actually go and read Anthony Henday's journal, he fully recognizes I didn't know anything what was going on. I went with this fellow, uh, the company assigned me to go, and he spoke the language. He spoke Cree, of course. I mean, Cree was predominantly the language of the of the fur trade for most of its era. So he spoke Cree, and he had an interest in indigenous cultures. And they said, why don't you go with Atikashish and report back on what you see? And so he went with this fellow named, a trading captain named Atikashish. And the only thing we know about him is that he's mentioned in Hendy's journal and a few other little places as being a, a well-known person. And this fellow took him on a multi-year journey that extended across all of, you know, the northern Manitoba, Saskatchewan, all the way down to west of today's Red Deer, Alberta, and up around Edmonton in the North Saskatchewan River and back again. And and he had he was one of the first people to have this grand tour of the interior part of the continent. And he was quite surprised to see, you know, um, skilled horse riding cultures within sight of the Rocky Mountains and landscape of grasslands and aspen parkland with with millions of bison swarming all over it and you know his reports back to the company were hardly even believed when he came back there but you know what to to hende what was a grand a grand multi-year expedition and exploration was to a tickishish just his regular business circuit he was using the hudson's bay outpost more as like a a wholesale distribution center um, where he acquired goods and he was managing, he and his team of people were managing the retail trade on these uh, circuits throughout the land. And so, you know, if you just, I'm using the same source, but just rephrasing the angle on which you view it a little bit. I mean, there's nothing, it's not to say anything against Hende. I'm sure he was an interesting person. In fact, he, he seems quite insightful, but he was definitely not the leader of that expedition. And so, you know, Anthony Hendry has to be considered with the Tikashish at the same time. I mean, they're both players in this grand adventure that they went on. And there's no point in only focusing on one and not the other. Um, I guess uh, the next question, when we look at like other countries, is there an example of a, of a, a company that's had as much of an impact on a country as Hudson Bay, the Hudson's Bay company has had uh, just towards Canada, towards development, settlement, uh, interaction with Indigenous, all of that? You know, it, there are a couple, but, you know, the, the Hudson's Bay Company is, is somewhat unique because it was around for so long. But, like, I mean, think of the East India, the English East India Company. I mean, uh, they accidentally ended up conquering India. And I say accidentally because it, it actually was not their plan at all. They were just a trading company. And um, it turned out that over time, one of the most valuable things they had to trade was their trained mercenaries that they were using <laughs> to defend themselves against the French and the Portuguese who were also there. But they were so good at military that they kept being hired out as, as troops and they kept building that up. And finally, they ended up conquering the, the continent, you know, famously uh, Robert Clive and his famous battles. And they ended up ruling this, this country, creating the modern India, which was then taken over by you know, the British Empire, but it was never, the British Empire never owned it. It was always the corporation that did. So they had enormous power too, in an entirely different way. Mm -hmm. But the Hudson's Bay Company, I think, um, you know, owing to the nature of the fur trade itself and the cultural diplomacy necessary for the company to operate within that environment um, had a, you know, profound effect upon, uh, well, Canadian society. Absolutely. 
Uh, when we look at the uh, the people who, like you said, you know, they'd sign a contract, uh, come to essentially almost the moon. I mean, in terms of the distance for them. Um, so they come here, and I think maybe we romanticize it a bit. You know, you're you're on the rivers, you're out in nature, but it was it was tough. It was hard work. Uh, what was it like for these people who who came here to this new place? And, and worked for, for years, like it was no easy task. No, I, I think it would have been, well, culturally, it would have been a very eye-opening. I mean, only a certain type of person probably would in those eras have ever signed on for the job and a, only a certain type would have succeeded at it. Someone who ha- would have had to been very open-minded culturally and open to you know extreme hardship mm-hmm. and a very primitive way of life compared to what they had in you know, in their previous life, somewhere on the British Isles, probably, or the Orkney Islands. Um, yeah, the f- blisteringly cold uh, winters along the coast of Hudson's Bay. I mean, there was a reason why, you know, the people there didn't overwinter on the coast of the bay. They went inland where it was less horrible. But the company's outposts were these, you know, one of them, for, uh, Prince of Wales Fort, is a horrible lump of frozen stone that's built up there in the Arctic. I mean, <laughs> the descriptions of, of what winter was like there is, staggering like it almost like he can't even believe it where there's like inches of frost and snow and ice building up on the inside of the buildings and they wake up in the morning and they're covered in frost and there's icicles coming off the (laughs) roof of it and they're no matter what they do they can't get cold and they can't keep the wind out and it just seems miserable you know and then in the summer the the amount of uh, black flies and mosquitoes that were there along the on the coast I mean there's a like I said, there's a reason why not very many people lived there all year round because they would go inland where it wasn't quite as miserable. But the, the outposts, you know, they tried to make the best of it. They tried to impose some, you know, weekly dinners for themselves, you know, fancy type ones or even daily dinners. I mean, they would all sit around the table and they would have, you know, they ate pretty well. You know, the the whatever indigenous peoples that they were dealing with, probably the Dine speaking ones further north and the Cree or the Ojibwe. For, you know, further south would often be contracted as as hunters and as gatherers to bring in various types of food. And they could also hunt a lot of uh, birds. So they were eating roasted, roasted birds a lot and fish. So some of their meal plans actually sound, you know, quite appetizing, actually. But... <laughs> Not too bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, when we go into the bay and we're, you know, we're, we're buying clothes and stuff like that, you know, it, it's very easy for us to forget the history of the Hudson's Bay Company. Um, and I guess a lot of people don't know, like, uh, you know, the Hudson's Bay Company was involved in battles, uh, the Battle of Hudson Bay, uh, the Battle of Seven Oaks. Are those kind of those interesting things in the, in the history that just a lot of people don't know about? Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many fascinating things like that because it, you know, went on for 200 years and was an all pervasive aspect of, of uh, interactions between peoples in, you know, everything outside of the St. Lawrence area of, has a, has quite a different history, you know, the, the sort of Ontario and, and uh, well, Eastern Ontario and, and parts of Quebec has a very different history, but anywhere where the company operated, which was an enormous region actually extending into parts of the Northern States and all the way out to the Pacific ocean at some point, including Washington and Oregon. I mean, yeah, the, the things that it was involved in, like you alluded to like giant battles. I mean, there was a huge battle in, in uh, Hudson's Bay involving uh, warships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even though the, the Hudson's Bay was always a, a civilian commercial operation. It was never involved in the military. There was no British troops involved in it. 
They didn't wear red coats and fire guns around and have British military officers ordering them around. It was always a completely separate entity. Um, people were not, you know, they were there to be work as blacksmiths and hunters and, and trappers and traders or um, cultural liaisons or whatever, all the daily aspects of work. They weren't, they weren't military. And nevertheless, whenever there was a conflict between England and France, which were very common in the 18th century, they were always at each other's throats. Um, the French would often either send overland troops up from Montreal, or in this one case, they sent a, you know, a huge fleet of warships in. And this, in one instance, there was also a British uh, fleet of a couple of warships, and they came in at the same time, I believe it was in the uh, 1690s. Um, anyway, it resulted in a naval battle of the sort you normally associate with the Napoleonic Wars, the ships going side by side with all the cannons blasting, the, the shards of wood shattering off the ships and the blood running in the things and the sink the ships, you know, being destroyed and sinking in the water and the crew being frozen in the freezing water, being sucked to their doom in the storms. And <laughs> um, and just, just quite a thing. And you go, wow, what the heck does that have to do with the fur trade? But, you know, this battle existed. And like you mentioned, Seven Oaks, another big, big battle with different, you know, different conflicting, uh, you know, with the Northwest Company that the Hudson's Bay Company was always at odds with and different Métis people and indigenous ones taking different sides in these various battles and conflict as they try and settle out, you know, how is the trade going to be managed? Who's going to be in control of it? And how are the supply lines going to be managed? I mean, you know, it's a very dynamic and, and interesting uh, in history, constantly changing over time. I mean, there was the one negative uh, part of the, I mean, when you're covering 200 years, it's, like I, th I mentioned before, it's hard to really sum it all up in one thing. There's such an enormous, <laughs> enormous grab bag of things. You know, and so many people live their lives within that context. And um, yeah, I think that the first 150 years of the company were a very different phase than the last 50 years, though. And the, you know, those first 150 years was was very tolerant and open uh, corporate culture with that involved... Um, well, had a, had a role to play for all the different people. It would never have existed. It existed at, at that sufferance of, of people who owned the land and lived there. And it was fully integrated with them in terms of, you know, they had their spouses and who were indigenous and their children were all raised up and the children are often taking on senior roles in the company's field operations. For many generations, it was, it was like that. And Cree was probably the predominant language spoken with English and French being secondary languages. Um, you know, there was a fellow named George Simpson who who took over the the company in 1820, when you know after the battles between um, the Northwest Company and the Hudson's Bay Company, the the two entities, one was being run out of Montreal with its famous Courier de Bois and voyageurs coming out, uh, you know, on the river systems, and the other from Hudson's Bay with its boats coming down the Saskatchewan River systems, and um, what they were eventually merged. This fellow named George Simpson sort of took over the amalgamated thing and he proved to be, you know, very good from a point of view of, of uh, corporate profits, which all ended up in London, very bad for the company's, uh, well, moral standing, let's just say. I mean, he, he was a bit of a, a psychopath control fanatic and he abused, he abused women, he abused his own employees, he abused indigenous peoples. Everything was... Uh, Everything negative that people have in their view of the of the Hudson's Bay Company, think of it like this great British monopoly that crushed and destroyed and smothered and controlled everything. I mean, that's all the Simpson era. Mm -hmm. You more or less 
wiped out 150 years of history that came before him and, uh, and just turned it into a much more exploitative entity, which, you know, had very negative impact because that was right in the 19th century, uh, mid 19th century. And um, it set a precedent. So when other, you know, when other settlers were arriving later in the century, they looked around and what they saw was this transformed Hudson's Bay Company culture at these various posts that was very um, condescending and uh, exploitative. And that set a precedent, I think, for relations between peoples that, you know, has persisted to this day and caused a lot of problems in society. I mean, I mean for example, you know, uh, Simpson, he was also very racist towards all the indigenous cultures and people and he, he started passing uh company ordinances that um commanding his senior officers to get rid of their indigenous wives and he was no longer going to promote them if they had indigenous wives anymore he wanted to start bringing over you know english english white white women and um you know attitudes like that and he would no longer be promoting the mixed heritage children of his own senior officers which caused a great deal of conflict but since he was there was no competition and he was at that point the de facto emperor of of a complete monopoly he was able to impose these somewhat odious social views across the entire network of forts and trading and enterprise you know all the way to the pacific ocean mm -hmm. Uh, in regards to, you know, the Northwest Company and everything, why was the Hudson Bay Company able to operate for essentially over a century as a monopoly? Uh, why did it take so long for like competition to come in? Was it just because there was so much distance, uh, the interior wasn't really explored? Or was it just because things took longer back then? Yeah, it's a bit of both, actually. I mean, I mean, uh, much is made of this great monopoly that they were given. But the you know, the, what the monopoly initially gave them in 1670 was uh, protection from domestic competitors. Um, so they were, you know, they were allowed to be the only British entity or English at the time entity that was going to operate in those lands. And so, you know, a different group of British merchants couldn't just, you know, form their own company and also go to Hudson's base. Um, so they, so they began from that point of view, but the, the monopoly never extended to other other countries or peoples and so you know there was always a french fur trade along the saint lawrence and it it was expanding westward too and northward towards james bay because that's where the best furs were to be held from um and so that that obviously led to the conflict between those two companies but it, it took many generations before um there was enough people involved in the trade and that there was not as not enough furs for both of them and their supply lines began to intersect somewhere in Manitoba, which is where we were talking about the Battle of the Seven Oaks, you know, was, was essentially over supply lines um, for long fur brigades that were extending from Montreal way up into the, you know, Slave Lake region and crossed with the Hudson's Bay Company supply lines and, and business operations that were coming, you know, south and west from the bay. And that's what that conflict was all. But it took a long time because the land was, was just so darn huge. Um, and like we were mentioning earlier, a lot, of the, a lot of the retail aspects of the trade were actually being managed by indigenous peoples, primarily the tree trade, uh, Crete, you know, were running their commercial enterprises that were doing that aspect of the business. And it was only, you know, actually a, a horrible uh, disease outbreak 
1780, which was a smallpox epidemic, which came up from Mexico, actually, and was able to spread so fast in a way that it never could have before because of uh, horses decreased the time of travel between different communities. And so the disease spread because people were asymptomatic for a long enough period of time that they would get to new communities. And anyway, it spread all the way up through the U.S. from Mexico along the western, uh, I mean, the eastern uh, prairies, just just to the east of the Rocky Mountains and then worked its way back east towards Hudson's Bay and the Great Lakes. Um, it was it was just a devastating uh, epidemic. I mean, it wiped out, you know, killing up to 80% of the people in certain regions, 100% um, in one region sometimes, and the next valley over, it would be completely, un it would, wouldn't touch the people at all. But anyway, that, that one expert, you know, that one... Uh, disease outbreak that went on for several years radically changed the interior of the of the of the whole northern part of the continent and it completely shifted the corporate patterns of the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company because there was all of a sudden a, a mighty depopulation of entire regions and of course you know to the company directors back in London they might view that as a source of um, a labor shortage or a you know, uh, problems with accessing some this, the usual quantity of furs or whatever. But for the people who were living there at the time, I mean, that could, that was a very different thing. They knew these people. They spoke their language with them. They had done business with them many years. Their wives were of those cultures and their own children were of blended culture. The, I mean, that could mean there, it might've been their extended family of these people who mm -hmm. were also dying of the disease. So, you know, this was a horrible event at that time. But the economic implications of it were that in order to maintain their business, the company, Hudson's Bay Company, started moving inland to take over more of the role of procuring or bringing their, their trading depots closer to people inland. Now, that it was very difficult for the, you know, the population density was so much lower that they had to keep accessing the distant markets themselves and that just, that's what drew the company in there in the late in the late 18th century so with the 1790s they were actively setting up outposts along the different river systems you know and going into the subarctic and alexander mackenzie's you know somewhat famous expedition to the pacific ocean and you get your david thompson characters you know surveying and mapping and looking for new routes and and you also get your um, it had the same impact to the Northwest Company, which wasn't really called the Northwest Company until the late 18th century. Anyway, it was just, you know, there were French traders. But of course, Britain ended up, you know, taking over, conquering New France, you know, in the 1760s mm. and ended up owning all of that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a complicated story, of course, but <laughs> that enabled British capital to flow into Montreal and finance further expeditions from the south from montreal so you know the conflict already began at that time and they they weren't even foreign they weren't french anymore the voyageurs were french or iroquois but a lot of the capital and a lot of the management was from scotland and tapping into the capital markets in london so that's when it became a serious competitor with the hudson's bay company and that's what drove all those clashes in the early 19th century mm -hmm. and uh yeah it really dynamic and unusual situation <laughs> over thousands and thousands of kilometers yeah you don't usually think about companies going to war but you know it wasn't a big one but i mean the pemmican war definitely was a unique part of our history um 
In regards to the book, uh, what was the research like? Uh, was it like a long process? Did you have to go through a lot of, was there a lot of traveling? Do you have to go through a lot of like old uh, books and old journals and things like that? Yeah, oddly enough, I mean, it because this is such a huge part of um, North American and particularly in Canadian history, almost everything associated with that has already been collected up and published. Um, and oddly enough, and this is, you know, I've written several books in the last little while. Actually, I think I've written 10 books now. And the last several ones, the research is astronomically easier than it ever used to be. I hardly even use anything on paper anymore or even go to a library. Everything has been digitized online through various universities they put up on their archive. So you can actually gain access to huge quantities of information right from your office, which is, oh, yeah. um, it's, it's actually amazing. It's transformed uh, how an author like myself can, can do the work. I mean, so I didn't really discover new material. I just looked at material in a different way and took an entirely different approach to telling the story, you know? So like I had mentioned earlier, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't confusing the source with the story. Mm -hmm. So I would get the information from the source. And then I imagine myself floating above the scene, looking down at the map and tell the story from that point of view, almost as if it's like a third person universal storytelling thing. And I really wanted to focus on the people too, rather than, you know, the economic minute or the, or the exact quantities of trade from each region or the exact numbers of beaver skins versus Martin skins and how the, you know, the trade could shift it over time. I mean, I mean, a lot of that information is out there. Academics have been studying this at, you know, at the universities for generations. Mm -hmm. um, but my focus was always going to be on the people um, and not on the exact, you know, technical minutiae of each individual region. Um, and a lot of these people do come to life. I mean, you, I had to search a bit more to find information like, for example, on Atikashish, he's not mentioned very much because he didn't write his own own journal. And so, but I, I won't tell his story in association with Anthony Hende's story to make sure that we have a better um, appreciation for what the land was like and, and the dynamics between the various peoples and how that was, you know, changing over time, depending on which regions and land they went to. And, um, but it, it does take a long time and it, the book ended up bigger, being bigger than what I thought it was going to be, and and the publisher had to agree to allow me to add a couple chapters on. You know, but if, honestly, if they had told me, we have unlimited money and we're going to shovel it out the door towards you, we need a book that's twice as long that covers everything. We don't, you know, <laughs> I could have written twice as long a book. There's there's an infinite number of stories that could go in there, right? And I always mm -hmm. wanted to tell like um. You know, there is a dominant narrative and it does focus on some of the main people and you cannot get away from that. But what I wanted to do is to bring in some of the smaller stories of people who live their lives within the context of the larger story, mm -hmm. um, just to sort of bring in a few little alter alternate little perspectives on the world or just a bit more, um, you know, diversity into which type of uh, which type of lives and, and how they were being lived, um, just to give a broader you know, appreciation for, well, the true liveliness of what was going right. on, the, dy the dynamic aspect of the, of the land and its, and its people and how they were all, you know, affected and changed by these ec changing economic conditions. Uh, in regards to that, what do you hope people get from reading the book? Uh, what do you hope they learn uh, about the, the company and, and the people who made it? 
I hope they learn like a the, f- the first thing is like how dynamic the land truly was and how interesting mm-hmm. it would have been in this era when there's all these different um different uh, cultures and different pre-existing trade networks and different um you know the the, the politics and the economic systems and you know, it's just it, to me, it's absolutely fascinating how it existed and how it interacted with the company and how the company changed with it over time. Um, the second is to, um, the first 150 years of the company's history is a very open, fluid um, corporate culture, which incorporated the the needs and the interests of all sort of people. Cultural diplomacy was one of the key aspects of it. I mean, probably more than half of the people who worked in that company were of indigenous or mixed heritage. I mean, that's something people don't really appreciate. They think, oh, it's some great, you know, English and Scottish intrepid adventurers doing all this. And no, it isn't really. I mean, let's be honest, especially if you count women as being people, which, you know, of course we do these days, a hundred years ago, they would not focus on that very much. But if you, factor in that half of the people in any given settlement were, were likely women and they were likely indigenous women or of mixed heritage and so were all their children's i mean as a social history that's a very different perspective on on uh well the company and its operations and how it changed over time and the and well i guess thirdly i can't stress um this fellow named George Simpson. I mean, I've written a lot of books. I read history. I love history. I and mean, I hardly ever come across anyone that's as mean and nasty a person as, as he was. And just how truly like repulsive an individual and how he cared so little about anything other than his own self. I mean, his own self was he just wanted to have power. Everyone he wanted to, under his thumb. He wanted to squash them and control them and just to be the preeminent sort of boss of everything and everyone and micromanage everything for his own benefit. Um, and what a negative aspect of culture he introduced into, well, most of Western Canada at that time and how how he destroyed so many different lives. But even, even when he was there, there were people who were living their lives working around him. But but as a, as a dominant historical character, I mean, he... he uh, you can't be ignored. You most certainly can't be celebrated. And we really need to come to grips with just how f- foul a person he actually was. <laughs> yeah, he, he was he was definitely a, a pile of crap. I, I've done uh, two episodes on the Hudson Bay so far, uh, one about its history and then one about uh, the Indigenous impact, like how the Indigenous were impacted by the company. And uh, this year, I'm going to do a third one. It will be about George and I, I agree with you. He he is he's a piece of work. Uh, the indigenous one, especially with the quotes he had about uh, his indigenous wives, was was really terrible. Like, yeah, people don't realize what a, what a piece of crap this person was. And he's yeah, knighted yeah. too. Like, <laughs> I know it's it's crazy. Well, he was he became very wealthy off of that, right? I mean, oh yeah. And he, I like to think he managed what I call an information empire as much as a fur trading empire because. Because he had so much power, he controlled all the ideas that were leaving and all the information that was leaving his domain and getting over to London. He managed it to present himself in a certain way and present the entire continent in a certain way for his own personal benefit. He controlled that information um, and he he was a bit of a psychopath. I mean, he recognized that 
he was going to be left alone as long as he kept the profit high. <clears throat> and so that became his predominant objective. Keep the dividends high in the company, make sure everything's running smoothly. And those directors over in far London who never, ever ventured across the ocean because it was really hard at that time to do that. Yeah. Um, he just kept them at bay. They looked and said, oh, George is doing a great job. Everything's hunky-dory. The money is coming in. So uh, let's just let him at it. And meanwhile, <laughs> if, you know, I don't know what they would have done if they had known what he was up to. But, uh, yeah, he had free reign to abuse people unrestrained for well, he was there for like 50 years in charge. Of, oh, yeah. Wasn't he 46 years? I mean, a long uh, time. Yeah, till 1866, I think. So, yeah, about 1820 to 1860. Yeah, yeah probably the closest we've ever had to, to a dictator in some ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. you'd have to be a really evil one, too. Like, every yeah. time something is written about him, he goes down a notch. So, like, if you follow the history, like, older books on him kind of celebrated him for being like, look how good he was at managing everything. Look how much money he made. So efficient. What a great manager. And then there's someone else saying, yeah, yeah, but he was a bit of an asshole. And then it goes a little <laughs> bit further. And then, you know, the, there was a biography of him. I think it was James Raffin wrote his biography. And I could tell that reading between the lines, he was like saying, oh, okay, I was raised to kind of think of this guy as being somewhat good, but I'm writing this biography and he's not coming across as very good here. <laughs> and he comes across as, you know, he's presented as being important, but somewhat unsavory. And then everything beyond that is even worse. Like when I wrote it, like, I can't even hardly say anything good about him, but I can't even look for anything. But what can you say? He was a logistical genius. He absolutely was. He just had no consideration or concern for people at all you'd yeah. crush them and destroy them and and you know sometimes he would end up doing a good thing but for the wrong reason he just wanted to manage the beaver population one reason because region because he noticed it was going down so what he would do is just make it illegal for any people from that region to, to trade okay well what are they going to do now so he's almost <laughs> imposing like horrible hardships on the yeah on, you know, like he just doesn't, he just did not care. He was like a robot or an AI system or something. Right? <laughs> That's a good way to describe him. Yeah. Completely by the numbers. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I guess the, the last question would be, uh, where can people find the book? Where can they contact you? Uh, if you're on any social medias, if you have a website, anything like that, you know, uh, let, how people can get in touch. Yeah. I mean, I, I have uh, stephenrbound.net. I mean, it's just an author author website with a bunch of information on all my different books. Um, the book's available everywhere, actually. In mm -hmm. fact, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful production. It was really challenging to get that all together in the the COVID lockdown of last spring. Can you imagine how hard it would be? On all the publishing offices of of Penguin Random House, this big multinational publisher in downtown Toronto, who just kind of ordered out of their office buildings and tried to repiece their entire business entity <laughs> from their kitchen. <laughs> so it was a bit, bit of a challenge, like getting all the parts of this book, because it happened right in the middle of it all. We trying to the most communication over how things are going to happen and, you know, the editing and the images and wow. It was <laughs> and uh, any social media or any, uh, any, uh, anything like that? Well, I don't really do Twitter's very much. I mean, I have a fa I have an author Facebook page. It would come up if someone typed my my name in, but I'm not hugely active on that. But I always respond when people send me, you know, queries through my website, which I get quite a few. Especially, <laughs> I can hardly keep up with them these days. Um, 
Yeah, I like to hear what people think and what their ideas are and, and share some of their stories too. I've heard some really fascinating things from people. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stephen Brown. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And again, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. And I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Diane Wade, Lori Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Pamela Elder, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. As well, you can find me on Facebook. Just search for Canadian History X. Remember, that's E-H-X. I'm on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And don't forget, you can find me on Instagram. Just search for Bairdo37. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.